0: So we're working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. We're living in a time where there's lots of competing voices, and we as the people of God are saying week in, week out that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. So we wanna listen to his voice most clearly and most intently, and then we want to allow his voice to set the agenda for how we navigate all the other voices of our lives. And so that's what we're on about. Now, a number of weeks ago, we talked about anger, Jesus talked to us about anger and then Jesus the week after talked to us about lust and about marriage fidelity. Last week uh, Jesus talked to us about the way that we use words and if you haven't listened to that sermon um, by Alan Fadling I really encourage you to go back and listen to it. There was a lot of wisdom and kingdom uh, truth and grace for us in that and this week we we come to what may be considered the summit of the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's the point for which the sermon is, in one sense most admired and most resented. <laughs> it's the point at which the sermon is most challenging and potentially most life-changing. Like nowhere is the distinctiveness of Christian discipleship in the Christian life more obvious than what Jesus talks about here. And nowhere is our need for tran- for the transforming power of the Holy Spirit more obvious than here. Jesus calls his followers to show sacrificial generosity towards evil persons and enemies alike. He says, you have heard that it was said. Now here he's quoting the Old Testament, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Do not resist an evil person. Now, the Old Testament portion that Jesus is quoting here is the so-called lex talionis. It was an ethical law that had a twofold purpose in the Old Testament. The first purpose was to restrain revenge, it was to say that punishment must be proportionate to the crime and no more. The second purpose was to define justice. Punishment must be enacted. It must not only fit the crime, but it must be enacted in order to ensure social order and to deter people from future offenses. This was part of a vision for the common good. In fact, Deuteronomy 19 even goes so as so far as to say this: It says, "In this way, Deuteronomy, you shall purge evil from your midst." Talking about a society, the rest shall hear and be afraid, and a crime such as this shall never again be committed among you. Show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand. Foot for foot. Pretty uncompromising. (laughs) Jesus, though, is equally uncompromising. But whereas Deuteronomy insists, show no pity, Jesus insists, do not resist the evil person. Jesus is replacing there. Whether one interprets Jesus' words as simply applying to the world or the realm of kind of interpersonal relationships and and so, therefore, kind of leaving space for a Christian notion of just uses of violence. Or whether somebody understands what Jesus is talking about is including the larger realm of kind of civil politics and international relations. And so, therefore, some sort of version of Christian pacifism. Whatever one kind of, wherever one goes with the application of Jesus' words, I think the meaning of them for disciples is essentially the same. It's this, however people are treating you, you, my disciples, are to respond with more grace, and outrageously so. Like, however people are treating you, you are to respond with more grace, and outrageously so. I mean, I could just pause here for a moment and think about the implications. (laughs) I mean, we almost need to go no further. I mean, imagine what this would do to our social media networks. Imagine what what this would do towards the way that we have political conversations and the way our governing officials interact with each other. Imagine what this would do to marriages and friendships and families and churches if this was what they thought it meant to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus wants his followers to live by the upside-down calculus of the kingdom. We're going beyond good and right, the right where going beyond the good and right demands of justice by responding to insult and injury with radical grace and generosity is precisely what Jesus wants from his followers. Now, Jesus drives this home, point home by kind of giving us four parabolic illustrations just to show us how countercultural this way of living actually is. The first illustration, at the end of verse 39, he says, If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. In other words, in a world where you are going to be disrespected by others, where you are going to experience injuries to your honor and your reputation and your beliefs and your convictions, do not dishonor in return, but reject all self-defensiveness. The second illustration, verse 40, And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Now, in the ancient world, the shirt was kind of like your underwear is your undergarment. And then your coat was the second piece that you wore over that. And those are the only two things that people wore. So the image here is like in a world where you're going to experience unfair and kind of litigious treatment, it is better to be unnecessarily generous, like to give everything you have to the point of almost being naked, than to return a lawsuit with another lawsuit. Third example, if we can get any more extreme, verse forty one. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Now, the language of forcing, it's a lot of commentators talk about how this is the language of kind of military service often. So it's someone asking a lot of your time and energy to serve in a particular way. In a world where you're going to be asked and serve to serve in ways that you would rather not serve, Jesus is saying, it's better to go the extra mile in your serving than to do barely the minimum. And then the fourth illustration, verse 42, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. In other words, in a world where you will experience people trying to take advantage of you, I think that's what this is getting at, It is better to find a way to bless them than to avoid them. It is better to find a way to bless them than to avoid them. In sum, the follower of Jesus is determined to be what the Beatitudes called a peacemaker, a servant, a generous person who is willing to be persecuted for doing good. The disciple of Jesus seeks to return evil with good and is willing to give to the uttermost, like willing to give body, cheek, willing to give clothing, willing to give extra service, willing to give money in a Christ-like sacrificial act of love. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're anything like me, I have a really hard time (laughs) imagining what this looks like in our world sometimes, because it feels like there are a few examples in my life of of what this plays out. And this is where I've actually found some genres of art and literature really helpful in kind of shaping my imagination. What could this look like? And one of my favorites is the novel by um, Victor Hugo, uh, Les Miserables. It's, you know, that great 19th century French novel and the priest finds at the beginning a homeless criminal on his doorstep and invites him inside for a meal and an overnight stay when nobody else would. Jean, Jean Valjean uh, he scours his meal and, and he watches them put away the silverware in the cupboard afterwards and he goes to sleep. But in the middle of the night, the temptation to steal that sel- that silver is too much and he gives in. So he takes all the silver he can muster and he leaves the house and runs away. The next morning, Jean Valjean is brought by some police back to the priest's house, cast in front of him, and said, we found this man who said you gave this stuff to him, but surely he stole it. And the priest says, oh, yes, I did give this stuff to him, but he forgot the best silver, actually, which I wanted him to take. And he goes in front of the police, grabs two silver candlesticks, these magnificent pieces, and he hands them to Jean Valjean. And he says, go but become an honest man. And I I love that. (laughs) And then the rest of the story is the sense in which this unmerited gratuity from this priest overwhelms Jean Valjean and actually turns him into a transformed man for the rest of his life. There's another book that I've been reading. It's It's a little more down to earth. It's a children's book. And somebody uh, from the congregation who's a teacher and knows literature well gave it to us for Annabelle, and it's called Down the Road by Alice Shirtle. Really recommend it to you. Parents ask their daughter, who's never gone to the grocery store by herself before. They ask her, they say, sweetie, we want to have an egg breakfast tomorrow morning, which is a really special thing. So can you walk all the way to the store, which is a long walk, go through the forest, cross the creek, all this sort of stuff with this basket, and can you buy 12 dozen eggs for us and be really careful when you're walking home to make sure that not one of the eggs is broken. And so they give the money, she goes, and on her way home, she has a ton of close calls and nothing happens. But then she sees in the field an apple tree. And she goes, oh, I love apples. And mommy and daddy love red apples. And so she goes. And as she is reaching up for, the, for, for these apples, her basket tilts and all the eggs fall out and pour onto the ground and, they, and they're crushed. And she's devastated. And she doesn't want to go home because she can't imagine how her parents are going to respond. And so she climbs up the apple tree and just thinks about what is, has what is come of her life. <laughs> she, her dad comes searching for her some hours later. He sees all the broken eggs and he goes, wow, I see something horrible happened. And she's up there eating apples. And he said, but apples really are tasty, aren't they? She said, yeah. So he climbs up the apple tree and starts eating apples with her. And then the mother comes about an hour later and she's ready to be really angry. Like, what are you guys doing? What happened to the eggs? Where are they? And she sees that both of them are in the tree eating apples. (laughs) And she goes, wow, A tree really is a nice spot for lookout, isn't it? And she climbs up into the apple tree. And the next scene is them walking home with their shirts and baskets full of red apples. And the concluding scene is mom and dad sitting down with their daughter eating apple pie for breakfast. I just thought it was this lovely image of parents meeting their daughter in her (laughs) demise and failure. And squandering of their resources in some sense, but meeting her with grace and making something new of it, an apple pie. See, I think Jesus is saying to us that like, no matter how people treat you, surprise them with grace, and outrageously so. Now, before we carry on any further, I think it's worth clarifying just a few things that Jesus is not saying, what he is not saying here. I think, number one, Jesus is not saying that we should turn a blind eye to genuine evil. We should not turn a blind eye to genuine evil. And I think where I get that is that Jesus calls evil, evil here. In fact, he's even more personal and exacting than that. He says, do not resist an evil person. He is acknowledging that there are people who are being very complicit in evil. He says, do not resist the evil person. So Jesus is not here encouraging us to kind of play fast and loose with the language of good and evil in an effort to kind of find a gentler, more palatable categories for us to talk in. Rather, Jesus wants us to confront and overcome evil, to not allow it to go unnamed or unchecked, even if it's become a key part of the status quo. But the way in which we do that is very different than the way in which the world thinks we should do that. So Jesus is not saying that we should turn a blind eye to evil. The second thing is that Jesus is not saying that we should be passive victims of violence and injustice. We should not be passive victims. Christians are not called to be doormats and pushovers. (laughs) Jesus was hardly that. And Jesus does not command passivity. But I think a form of active resistance, a form of active resistance to evil that does not play evil's game on evil's terms. Now, the person who I found most helpful in this regard, and I would commend their chapter on this to you, is Richard Hayes in the book, The Moral Vision of the New Testament. He's a New Testament scholar at uh, Duke University and a, a kind of ordained pastor in the Methodist church. And he writes this. He says, the posture of Jesus's community is not to be one of passivity. The actions positively prescribed here by Jesus are parabolic gestures of both renunciation and of active service. By doing more than what the oppressor requires, the disciples bear witness to another reality, the reality of the kingdom of God, a reality in which peacefulness, service, and generosity are valued above self-defense and personal rights. And then he continues, thus, the prophetic non resistance of the Jesus community may not only confound the enemy and the enemy's evil, but also pose an opportunity for the enemy to be converted to the truth of God's kingdom. End quote. Jesus is not saying that we should be passive victims, but rather that our active resistance is to be of such a kind that it confounds the enemy and bears witness to the different way of the kingdom. And third, Jesus is not saying that we should be naive about our money and possessions and allow people to take advantage of us. This is where I think Augustine's distinction between whatever and whoever is very helpful. He pointed out that Jesus does not say in the final verse, give whatever you are asked. But rather, he says, give to whomever asks. In other words, Jesus' command is a person-centered command, not a possessions-centered command. So I think this means that Jesus wants us to find a way to be generous to people. He wants us to give. But he does not necessarily prescribe here exactly what and how we ought to give. But there is more detail in the Bible, and I think this it comes from our Romans 12 reading by Paul. There's a little more description of what this may look like in, there. So Paul says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. That's verbal generosity. And then Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. That's emotional generosity and solidarity. Then he says, live in harmony with one another. That's volitional generosity and symmetry. And then he says, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. That's relational generosity and humility. And then do not repay anyone evil for evil, says Paul, but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. That's missional generosity and clarity. And then Paul says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That's personal generosity and responsibility. And then Paul says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him some to drink. In so doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. In other words, you will shame your enemy by offering them precisely what they were not willing to offer you. That is practical generosity. And charity. And finally, he says, do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus, according to Paul. Like I said, could anything possibly be more countercultural in this moment? Could anything be more needed in this moment? Could be anything be more challenging and yet appealing in this moment? Could anything require the presence and the ministry of the gift of the Holy Spirit more than this in this moment. Now, if you're anything like me, there's a certain sort of pragmatist in you that has a difficult time with this teaching of Jesus and of Paul. And I think understandably so, like this kind of nonviolent call to discipleship. I often ask myself the question is it not our duty in certain situations as Christians? out of charity and love for our neighbor, to wield the proverbial sword in order to defend the defenseless and free the oppressed? Isn't that what many Christians throughout church history have come to the conviction is a good and right thing to do in many circumstances? Now, this is a really good and important question, which like I said, the church has wrestled with for many centuries and which I'm gonna by no means settle right now. (laughs) But if you wanna talk about it more, we can talk about it afterwards. But I think that the impact of our gospel and our epistle readings this morning is to actually invite us to ask a different question altogether. It's this: Is it possible that nonviolent resistance and sacrificial generosity are more powerful and effective in overcoming evil than the sword? Is it possible? that nonviolent resistance and sacrificial generosity are more powerful and effective in overcoming evil than the sword? I think that's the question. This is what Martin Luther King Jr. believed and lived in the 1960s. This is what the people of uh, Molina Malina believed and lived in the revolution of the of the of 1986 in the Philippines. Or the example that people often ask me about is about World War II. It is fair to wonder what would have come of the world if Christians, American Christians, Canadian Christians, British Christians, did not fight against Hitler. That's a good question. But I wonder if the question our gospel text is proposing to us is, what, how would the world have been different if German Christians did not vote for and support and fight for Hitler? I think Jesus is challenging our instincts here. Instincts that have been cultivated in a culture that sometimes valorizes violence. Wants us to believe that might is right. That if we don't get our way, then we push and we shove to get our way. And Jesus does challenge our instincts here because he wants to bring us into a deeper reality of the gospel. He's not asking us here to do anything he hasn't already done for us. And he's only inviting us to experience the richness of the kingdom life that he himself experiences and lives. I mean, think about Jesus in the wilderness temptations in Matthew 4. Satan offers him the ability to wield all the power of the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus renounces it, saying, no, I will worship and serve the Lord God alone. In his three kind of passion predictions in chapters 16, 17, and 20, Jesus foretells his fate as one who will be persecuted for righteousness' sake, and he suggests that those who follow him will share the same. In Gethsemane, Jesus struggles with his vocation, and it's his vocation of suffering in particular. Lord, is there another way to do this? And yet, he says, not my will, but your will be done, and he drinks the cup of suffering. At his arrest, Jesus admonishes the disciple who picks up a sword and attempts arms resistance and says, put your sword back in its sheath, for all who take the sword will perish by it. And then Jesus, as he's hanging on the cross, the victim of a cruel and unjust political power, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. See, Jesus' followers are transformed when they encounter this really strange prince of peace. They're filled with his spirit of peace. They're clothed with his gospel of peace, and they are blessed to be his community of peacemakers. You, says Jesus, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are to be a city set on a hill, showing a different way of fighting evil than the world fights evil. And the question that I'm kind of coming away with here is, as a church, if this is who we're called to be in this season, are we living into our identity and calling as a community of peace? And as individual disciples of Jesus, if this is who we're called to be in this season, am I living into my identity and calling as a peacemaker, blessed by Jesus to to bear peace? And if I were to break those questions down in a few different ways, I would ask myself, am I a peacemaker at home? Am I a peacemaker at home? You know, we have so many ways of making family members pay for the wrongs they do us. Do, we, do I return wound for wound, insult for insult, snarky comment for snarky comment, pain with silence, Or do I seek to be more generous than the way I've treated? Hoping that whatever hurt or pain or injustice has been committed will be overcome only with a greater act of generosity. Am am I a peacemaker at home? Or I'd ask myself, am I a peacemaker in my neighborhood? (laughs) And I would think here both of like my physical neighborhood, um, the streets I walk, in the morning or evening, but also of like my virtual neighborhood on social media. As, as people raise flags making political statements in, in my neighborhood and physical neighborhood or make posts doing the same in my virtual neighborhood that may really grate on my sensibilities and insult the opinions I have, do I turn away from them and avoid them and defriend them? Or do I try to find ways to be generous to them and understand them and listen to them and and even maybe bless them, I think? Am I a peacemaker in my neighborhoods? And then I would probably ask myself, am I a peacemaker in my church community? You know, it's one of the really interesting things about this time is is just that the, the ways in which the divisiveness of our culture so often seeps into the life of the disciples of Jesus Christ. And the reality is, is that the divisiveness is only going to get worse for the next 60 days as we head towards an election. Like the voices of political polarization are only going to get louder. The insults are only going to cut deeper. The vote seeking will only get more manipulative. And I think the question for us as a community of Jesus is, is do we, do I echo the pain and the frustration and the anger and the hostility of the world around us? Do I respond to like with like? allowing divisions to define and divide and dictate and distract? Or, do I choose to serve rather than to be served? To be wounded rather than to inflict wounds? And do I choose to pair patiently with the failings of others, extending the same sort of kindness and compassion that God and Christ has so graciously offered me? See, brothers and sisters, this is possibly one of the hardest passages in the New Testament to really live into and follow. And yet I feel like nothing is more needed in our world today than to bear witness to the kingdom in this way, in this time, we this particular people in this particular place. And the lovely thing is that when we lean into this countercultural and oftentimes sacrificial way of living, it's precisely there that we experience Jesus' blessing. Blessed are the peacemakers, says Jesus, for they shall be called children of the living God. Such is the counterintuitive wisdom of the kingdom of God, friends. I speak this to you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.